Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. For I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. In the name of the living God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. So, thank you for the welcome. Uh, that was fun. And if you're a visitor, man, it's confusing. So, <laughs> uh, But it's, it's just a joy. I, I, I finally don't have words for the weekend. Um, it hit me right there with Dean Kidd. I'll say more about all of this, but let's talk about the word of the, God, the, word of the Lord. Um, I got plenty to say during announcements and stuff, maybe. Okay, there's a hilarious website that I, you're all going to go home and check it out, I believe. It's called A Book a Minute. You just type in Book a Minute, and it'll take you to the website. And it's ultra-condensed versions of classic books, sci-fi books, even children's books. And let me give you an example so you know what we're in for. Old Man in the Sea by Ernest Hemingway. Summarized like this. An old man catches a fish that's too big for his boat. The fish gets eaten by sharks. He goes home and dies. The end. (laughs) The collected works of Jane Austen. Summarized. (laughs) Female lead. I secretly love male lead. He must never know. Male lead. I secretly love female lead. She must never know. They find out. The end. (laughs) Harry Potter. Seven book series. Harry Potter. I thought I was a lonely, a lowly child. I'm a wizard. Various adults throughout Harry's life. Harry, here are some secrets I'm not supposed to tell you. Harry saves the world. The end. (laughs) Okay, that's fun. And I actually spent... Uh, about a half hour when I should have been working on a sermon, looking up other books. Uh, So have fun with it. There wasn't one for the Bible, so I wrote one for us. It's not as funny, but hopefully it brings us hope. The deepest message of the Bible in the ministry of Jesus is the mercy of God to sinners and sufferers. That's it. The first thing I want to say in this role is the deepest message of the Bible in the ministry of Jesus is the mercy of God to sinners and sufferers. That's because the human condition is that we're a mixed bag of both. It's really like, here's the sin and here's the suffering. And it's just really a matter of which one's prominent at that given time. Sometimes in the week, the main thing's going to be your sinning. Sometimes it's going to be your suffering, but they always are there together. Sinning and suffering go hand in hand. Guilt and shame. Sin and suffering. Being marked by what we've done, being marked by what's been done to us. In our gospel passage, I could not have thought of a more providential passage to have read, but it's all throughout the Bible, so I I think probably any passage would have worked. But uh, this one, you have Jesus... Uh, walking along. Let's look at the sinner one first. So you have sinners and sufferers right in our Matthew passage. Jesus is just walking along. He calls a man named Matthew, and he's, Matthew's hated. He's a tax collector. I mean, he was, he was the scum of the earth to the people there, and he said, follow me. So he's, one of his first disciples is Matthew, 
and he got up and followed, and then he went to dinner with Matthew and his friends. I mean, this is the, the reputation move was, was really poor by Jesus on this one. And it says, with tax collectors and just sinners, just a category, sinners, came and sat with Jesus. And the Pharisees, the law followers, the righteous, start sneering, what is your teacher doing? And Jesus then gives us that line that we started with, those who are well have no need of a physician, those who are sick. Go learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I've come to call not the righteous, but the sinners. What I love about that passage, notice Jesus knows that they were in a judging, condescending way, giving them the tax collectors and and sinners. He went with it. He didn't pull back and say, actually, they're not as bad as you think. He went with it and he owned. He was like, yeah, I came for the sinners. Like, that's the category you want to be in. Um, like, well, fine-tune that sentence. You know what I meant. Um, but the key point for Jesus was knowing you were a sinner in need of his help. Not trying to get yourself out of the category on your own terms. Jesus was the friend of sinners. He spent so much time with them that he got a bad reputation for being, uh, for being a party animal and being a glutton. And you have to spend a lot of time with people. For, uh, if he hung out with them once, that would be one thing. But apparently this was a done enough times that people were like, yeah, those are his friends apparently. <laughs> so when, when you're in the sinner category, when you're feeling the weight of being a sinner, when you're feeling the weight of the burden, what's the hope? Romans 4, which my daughter read magnificently. That's the hope. God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. A huge promise of being a nation, which uh, you would think that requires him to and Sarah to uh, make children. And he's thinking, we're, we're all too old. We can't do this. Uh, this is ridiculous. And it said, what did it say in there? It said that the promise was made... And the response to God's promise was trust. It was faith. The phrase I love, it was hope against hope. That line jumped out to me this morning. Not earning it. The whole point of Romans 4 was not earning it by your own righteousness or your own obedience. It says, therefore, therefore his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now the words this is Paul. It was reckoned. It was imputed. It was given to Abraham. Righteousness was given to Abraham because, not, because he believed in him who made the promise. It will be reckoned to us also when we believe in Christ who raised, uh, believe in God who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who is handed over to death for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is a magnificent thing, because at first it looks like, okay, I'm going to give you a promise, Abraham. Here's the promise. If you do it right, get to work and make a nation and lead them in the right direction. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. The promise was made, and Abraham had faith in the one who made the promise. And because he trusted the one who made the promise, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's an amazing thing, because righteousness is what comes from following the law. The law shows you what righteous is. 
And so for Paul here to say, this, 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 is, this is us. That's not just Abraham. It wasn't written just for them. It was written for us is what Paul says in Romans 4. What this means is that when you feel the weight of guilt, the good news is that Jesus took the penalty as your substitute for your law-breaking. In your place, your guilt went to him. That's why your sins are forgiven. Because the charge and the guilt went away from you to someone else who absorbed the guilt for your sins and was treated as if he was a sinner. But the second part that people leave out of the gospel is that your sins are forgiven and we are declared righteous. Eucharistic prayer B, which is my favorite, which uh, it says, he makes us worthy to stand before him. We are considered righteous in the eyes of God if we're in Christ. Pure, perfect, righteous, and holy. Because Jesus was sinless and fulfilled the law, the righteousness that comes from fulfilling the law is given to us as if we accomplished it. Because we have a substitute. So it's the the great exchange. It's our sins go to Jesus. He gives us his righteousness. And so whenever you hear the voice of condemnation say, Are you really forgiven? You did it again? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because your sins have already been paid for on the cross and his obedience of fulfilling the law and the righteousness that he earned is given to you as a gift. It's reckoned to you. It's given to your account. It's given to you. That's why we stand in that grace. That's why he makes us worthy to stand before him because we stand in someone else's righteousness. The result of this forgiveness and being declared righteous is life-changing, but something that we all need also. There's an incredible moment at the beginning of Ernest Hemingway's short story, The Capital of the World. A father comes to Madrid searching for his estranged son, Paco who turns up empty. And there was a pretty significant rift between the two of them. His son dishonored the father. In an act of desperation, notice the father goes looking for his estranged son who is not worthy of his father's love, based on human terms. The bereft man is desperate, places a short ad in the city paper, and it says, Paco, meet me at Hotel Montana, 12 noon Tuesday. All is well All is forgiven. So the father arrives at the appointed time, at the appointed place. And in the short story, the man cannot believe his eyes because a crowd of 800 young men, all named Paco, showed up (laughs) waiting for their papa's arrival because they wanted things to be all well and all is forgiven. So when you feel the weight of guilt... Know that God is like that father. And that's what the word of the gospel is. All is well is all forgiven because of Christ. Come and enjoy. Notice it's all by faith. That's the, that's the whole point of Genesis 12. It's the whole point of Romans 4. It's the whole point of our gospel passage. Is this the, the promise that comes from faith. Hope against hope. For this reason it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace. And be guaranteed to all of Abraham's descendants. That's the first answer is when, if the grace of God, if the message of the Bible is the grace of God to sinners and sufferers, when you're feeling 
the weight and burden of sin. That's what we're dealing with is the work of Christ on our behalf. But what about when you're suffering? Look at the gospel passage again. It goes literally straight from, I came to call, not the righteous, but the sinner. And then it goes straight into two amazing stories of faith. You have a, a, a man whose father or whose daughter dies. What's shocking about these stories? I know my human condition. If my daughter died, I'd be angry with God arguing, not looking for some miracle somewhere. If I'm suffering, like I woke up late this morning, a half, 45 minutes late, I was frantic and thought my life was falling apart because I woke up late, not because I had an issue of blood for many years. And so what you see in this moment of this, these people, his daughter's dead. That's, you're supposed to turn into resignation at that point, not I know who can heal her. And he runs, they're running to Jesus in the middle of their suffering when there's no reason to even have hope. She's dead. They're running to Jesus looking for hope and healing. And he says, I know, come and lay your hand on her and she'll live. Or if only I can touch the fringe of his cloak. Doesn't even want him to touch her. I just want to touch the fringe of his cloak and I will be made well. And, this is, and Jesus says, you're right, your faith has made you well. And then the dead girl is healed. In both cases, something miraculous happens. God acts from the outside. He's not working from the inside to give them some type of advice that kind of exudes through them. He comes in in his majestic, loving, compassionate power and acts on their behalf. We all need the grace of God for forgiveness of sins, but we all suffer have suffered, and will suffer. And what you need to know, what I want you to know, what I know I need to know, is that God's disposition to you in that moment is an annoyance. It surely is not karma if you're his kid. Jesus, God does not do karma. He's not getting a pound of flesh out of you. You're not suffering because he's getting you back because of fill in the blank. His disposition to you is compassion. In, in both cases, It's faith. By faith, you're forgiven and declared righteous. By faith, we are healed. And that's actually the great news that it's about faith. But the problem with that is that it takes about, right now, I'm talking about great news that has nothing to do with your obedience. Um, It's all about faith. And if you're like me, I go pretty quickly to, do I have enough faith? Is my faith strong enough? My faith feels weak. I don't know if I have what it takes. I'm I'm not even doing the faith thing right, but these passages are about faith. They're not about being examples. Be like the father. Be like the woman. Be like Abraham. They are in the sense of acknowledging your desperation, that you need God to act. And if he doesn't act, you're hopeless. That's what faith is. This is not an, is your faith like theirs? Here's three ways to have a faith like theirs. To constantly examine whether you have enough faith is to turn faith into its opposite. Faith is not looking at yourself. It's not inspecting the strength of your faith, but it's fixing your eyes on Christ, the Savior and Redeemer of the world. It is not the strength of your faith 
that saves you, but the strength of him upon who you rely. Christ is able, willing, joyfully willing to rescue, save, and redeem. Just come to him. Come to him in faith. Come to him in hope against hope. I haven't shaken this sin this decade. Hope against hope. He hasn't healed me yet. The haunt of the abuse I experience still feels like it's still nagging at me. Hope against hope. Keep on running to him. It's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. And our Savior, I have one job as a bishop, to point to the good shepherd. To say over and over again, our Savior is strong. Our Savior is patient. Our Savior is compassionate. And way more than we can ever imagine and he is completely trustworthy. I know I'm making bold claims too, because it's not my gospel, it's his. I'm throwing you to him, hoping he shows up and does what he promised he would do, but he's a God who makes promises, Genesis 12, and he's a God who keeps promises, the rest of the Bible. Martin Luther says this, and we'll close. God receives none but those who are forsaken, restores health to none but to those who are sick, gives sight to none but the blind, life to none but the dead. He has mercy on none but the wretched and gives grace to none but those who are in disgrace. So I want to end with three stanzas from the famous hymn, Come Ye Sinner, Poor and Needy. And then we'll pray and continue worshiping. Notice how the hymn puts sinner and suffering together, too. Like, it's not trying to separate them as categories like I did. It's just, that's our reality. Come to the table, Confess your sins as you need to. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost, and ruined. What a powerful word. We've been ruined by the fall. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. But if you tarry till you're better, you'll never come at all. Bring it to Jesus, he can handle it. Amen.